Hello and welcome to another episode of God's Own Scale podcast, where the smaller it is, the bigger the bang. I'm Sean Clark, your host, and today I'm talking to Little Wars TV Tom. I have to apologise to Tom, this episode is about a week late coming out. Uh, just one or two things crept up at work that uh, left me very little time to get this episode put together, but hopefully, hopefully it'll be worth the wait. I hope you're all well, enjoying the weather if you're in the UK. It's been unseasonably hot, which is great. Uh, however, uh, does mean that spending time indoors painting little men uh, perhaps uh, isn't as an attractive proposition as it is normally. Just a little bit of hobby news before we move on to the interview. I've got uh, a few events to talk to you about. Uh, first of all, on July the 1st, we have the Bloody Big Battles Big Bash Day, uh, number four, which is taking place in Leeds. Uh, it's run by Chris Pringle. Uh, and is an opportunity for you to try out the bloody big battles rules, which I am very excited to try out. And I've got two or three little projects that are vying for my attention um, to do just that. I haven't quite nailed down which one I'm going to go forward with yet. But um, there is, there'll be a link in the show notes, but the format is entirely participation games based on hi- historical battles using the bloody big battles rules. Um, There's been three of these uh, days previously, but this is the first one, I think, post-COVID. Games on offer, according to the website, just at the moment are Aspen Essling and another 1813-1814 battle to be confirmed. Uh, The second Sikh War, I think it's Gujarat, uh, is the battle for that. Uh, second, Manassas and Chancellorsville for the American Civil War. Kissingen, uh, Bavarians versus Russians for the Austro-Prussian War. Uh, Sedan for the Franco-Prussian War. And then a Zulu war battle, um, which is either in Sandalwana or... Now I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to say Nizane. Uh And maybe, uh, the website says, uh, a bloody big battles Q&A uh, and discussion session over lunch. Um, this takes place the day before the next event I'm going to talk about, which is the Joy of Six, uh, but very handily is in the same area of the country in Yorkshire. So if you get to one and are staying over, then it could be that you could uh, get to both days. But if you want any details um, from Chris or Colin, actually, I think Colin is the other organiser, the email address is bbb.bashday at gmail.com or uh, just seek out the Bloody Big Battles page on Facebook and as is the way with these things I'm speaking to Chris tomorrow night which will be as I record the 22nd of June looking to get that episode out probably over the weekend to give give us a week uh, in the build up to the uh, Big Bash Day uh, for anybody who's interested in going along. And on that note, uh, we have the Joy of Six the following day. Um, 
Now, I am incredibly disappointed that I'm very possibly missing this uh, due to being away, but uh, I'm not giving up hope yet. Um, I'm rather desperate to get back to the Jury of Six, but we all know what the Jury of Six is about. We've spoken about the Jury of Six on the podcast many times previously, and Peter looks as though he has excelled himself in gathering together the great and the good of the six mil hobby world. Lots of traders, lots of games, um, some spectacular games in their in their size and scope and capacity and uh, some of the smaller games really showing off just how great six mil is as a scale to war game in, uh, particularly for those big battles. But I know uh, some alumni of the podcast are going to be in attendance, uh, the likes of Robert Dunlop, Per Broden and Nick Darrell, uh, amongst others. So um, please do your best to get along and support what is, for me, probably my favourite show of the year. Um, no, I'm going to strike that from the record. I'm going to say it's my favourite show of the year, uh, purely because of the focused attention on 6mm and the fact that the atmosphere and buzz around that show is unlike any other show uh, on the circuit for me. Partisan is great. I love Partisan, both Partisans. I love Hammerhead and other shows that I go to. But for me, Joy of Six just pips it, or pips any of those, uh, for the uh, atmosphere and buzz around the show. And it's very rare that there's that usual drop-off after lunch of, of people who've done the shopping and wandered around the show games. Uh, people do tend to hang around, and I, I know Peter has said before that he's had to practically kick people out of the venue at four o'clock uh, because the tidy knob has to begin uh, and they have to hand the, hand the venue back um, to the owners. So details are up on the usual joyof6.co.uk website and of course the Facebook group uh, and the Bacchus website uh, should you need to find out uh, any more details but as usual it's at the Sheffield Hallam uh, University taking place on Sunday the 2nd of July. Another event taking place in July is the Summer Games Day on the 22nd of July, Saturday the 22nd of July at Pendraken headquarters. So this is a new venture for Pendraken um, where there's going to be I think around about half a dozen games on offer for people to play um, and experience the wonders that is uh, Pendraken HQ up in uh, the northeast. Um, it's a little bit of a drive for me but I am seriously contemplating this one. I'm definitely in the country uh, when it's on so I'm really hoping uh, to get up there for this event uh, and perhaps have a, a little stay over uh, a cheeky stop over um, there are I think around about half a dozen games as I've said there's a World War One uh, dogfight um, there is uh, fantasy games ongoing um, there is a, a game called After Casablanca on by the Lancaster War Games Society. Um, 
all details are on the Pendrakon uh, Facebook page, but there's a World War II naval game in 15mm, which sounds intriguing. Uh, a turkey hunt, big on strategy, present the turkey hunt set in the French-Indian Wars using 54mm figures. Um, and the Durham War Games group are presenting Song of Arthur and Merlin, uh, which is a, another little fantasy game using Songs of Blades and Heroes, which is a rule set I've used myself. Uh, and it's a very interesting rule set. Uh, so seven, actually seven participation games, snacks and drinks, free parking. Uh, the games, I think, are touted to last around about an hour, so everybody can actually um, have a go at each of the games, uh, which sounds great to me. So if you're around the northeast on Saturday the 22nd of July, get yourself up to Pendrakon and, and try those games out. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, about three weeks later, we've got BritCon 2023 held at Nottingham Trent City Campus, uh, hosted by the British Historical Games Society. Uh, I think, again, another alumni of the podcast, uh, Tim Porter, uh, a.k.a. the Mad Axeman, is the guy responsible for that. Um, but this is a long-standing event with lots of competition games, uh, from all sorts of periods and genres being played. Uh, and I think since it's moved to the Nottingham Trent City campus, there's probably a little bit more space. It's a bit more central than it used to be at the old Barnes-Wallace building in Manchester. So get yourself along to that and have a look what that's all about. I'll certainly be popping along uh, and seeing what's on offer, even though it's all competition games, which, as everybody knows, isn't my favourite. Okay, that's enough from me waffling on about the news. You're not here to hear my voice. You're here to hear Little Wars TV Tom talking about wargaming. So, let's talk about six. Mademoiselle from so, uh, welcome uh, to the podcast, Tom from Little Wars TV. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hi, Sean. Great. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm great. And even happier that uh, the two tin cans have stretched across the Atlantic and the string is taut. <laughs> The line is good, so nothing should stop us from having a, a good chat. I'm, I'm so pleased uh, you've agreed to come on, Tom, because I did reach out to you prior to stopping the podcast last time round. Uh, you were on the hit list, um, along with one or two other members uh, from your group that I haven't managed to get to yet, but uh, uh, you're certainly on that list. And I'm so glad you've agreed to come on. Um, as... I've started the podcast again. I've I've introduced a, a new segment. Rather than go down that hackneyed route of asking people how they started in wargaming, and it's generally either airfix or board games or crawling around on the floor with army men and marbles, uh, we've got the first, last and everything segment. I will admit, and this is full disclosure, this is stolen from another podcast, but not a wargaming podcast. Hmm. from a role-playing podcast called The Grognard Files. Um, but hopefully uh, there's not too much crossover of, uh, of people that, that listen. So they went, um, the guys who hog, 
that host the Grognard files won't be too disappointed that I've stolen wholeheartedly their segment. Um, Good ideas want to be stolen. There's no. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Imitation is uh, the sincerest form of flattery, isn't it? As they say. So, uh, so your first war game, Tom. By that I mean the first one with rules, dice, take measures. Can you remember that far back? Sure, sure. Uh, well, first, I, again, thank you for having me on. I, uh, I'm glad you're back uh, and recording again and pacing yourself appropriately. It sounds like you, that's the plan. But um, my first war game where it was uh, dice and miniatures and rulers was a uh, more of a fantasy game, uh, but it was the chainmail offshoot of Dungeons and Dragons. So, you know, if you okay. recall, if you played that. If you get to a certain level, 10th, I believe, as a fighter, you got to build a retinue. And um, so we did that and managed, uh, this is probably 1980 or so, uh, and then managed to broaden our uh, horizon into, you know, miniature wargaming. So that was really the first proper one where there was, you know, all those main ingredients. The uh, the last war game. uh I'm actually thinking the last war game that I actually was a player in, because I run as many as I play in, it seems sometimes, but uh, uh, was when we were prepping to go to Vicksburg just recently, Greg designed a war game in a suitcase or a portable war game uh, concept and had a cam- operational campaign of Vicksburg that we packed, had miniatures and, you know, small numbers. So. I played that in prep for that trip. Uh, the game I, pl- I I ran before that, just before that, uh, was um, the Battle of Soissons, 1918, uh, using square bashing or a fairly large scale square, square bashing, much smaller squares and 10 millimeter uh, figures. Yeah. And uh, that was uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, my most recent purchase is uh, actually I think it's from. Um, I say I think because they blur together somewhat. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, cracker line miniatures or oh. good ground. Uh, so 10 millimeter ACW. Um, I needed, um, I wanted some more variety uh, in my mm. poses. I had a lot of Pendragon, had their cavalry. Um, and so I saw that in the Western forces for, I think, um, square line or cracker, um miniatures they had some really nice cavalry poses so i'm still waiting on those but that's the most recent purchase but they look great uh, they're not well I, I can order from the states but there's there's no uh no seller for them or agent for them in the uk but uh that i've been on the website numerous times the american civil war is one of my favorite periods and um some of the uh the photographs that they have of their tables yeah. set yeah. up they just look amazing don't they yeah, they look very nice, and I have, uh, I think, you know, one of a couple of the wargaming and history uh, those volumes where they do ACW, and uh, they often use the ten mils in there uh, from yeah. all the lines, and and they really, it's a great scale. I, it's interesting enough. My original scale, pardon me, sorry, my original scale for ACW was six mil. Yeah, um, and uh, I ended up. Just recently, I thought I would never move away from that, but uh, I decided to do cavalry in 10 mil. Um, and once you start down that road, you know, there's 
there, you you need a little bit of infantry. You need a little bit. So next thing you know, you're, the collection there is growing. <laughs> yes. I do like the scale a lot. Uh, Ten mil figures with six mil buildings. Uh, yeah. Just get a great look from that. Yeah, that really works, doesn't it? Particularly if you're playing at that more grand tactical uh, level of game, then mm. uh, the footprint of the six mil uh, works so much better, and, mm. and I think visually it works really well as well. So, and uh, and you sound like a man after my own heart that the American Civil War has been uh, there with you and a, a constant, and I am continually or continuously flitting backwards and forwards between scales i've got a huge six mil collection um mm -hmm. i've got two two huge six mil collections actually uh one was uh the bacchus range which i bought when i started to play ultra freedom but i've also got a massive uh heroics and ross collection mm. from that's about 40 years old uh and it's looking 40 years old but i'm very fond of it um was that yeah, original or did you procure that yeah, no, that's so I've told this story a couple of times about a guy who first got me into the American Civil War. Um, he's he's a little bit older than us, um, but he, he is a Civil War nut. Mm -hmm. uh, so much so that it's probably all he's war games for 50 years, I would suggest, uh, in all scales. Um, and probably his name is Jeff Davis. Um, which I find <laughs> I, I'm, I've never asked him actually whether or not that, that there's some uh, change of name at some point because <laughs> uh, he, he's definitely uh, soft on on the the southern uh, uh -huh. side of the wall. Uh -huh. um, uh, but he he painted up this collection um, forty plus years ago, and I coveted it for a long time, and he gifted it to me a, a few years no ago. No kidding. Uh, yeah. which was just incredible, um, and I'm very fond of it. Yeah, um, I bet. Uh, but not actually done anything with it, uh, so I, I need to I need to correct that. But uh, mm -hmm. anyway, that, that's me. We're, we're here to talk about you, Tom. So uh, if, if, you were to, if you were to think back through your wargaming history, what, what one game means the most to you? That's either with the people you played with, the, the actual sure. game you played, where you did it, or... Um, you know, th these questions are always tough uh, just because there's so many. Um, yes. But the the one that comes to mind, it's funny, it's American Civil War again. Uh, Greg ran with the club uh, probably about seven years ago, uh, a Gettysburg campaign. And uh, I commanded the Army of the Potomac. Um, and um, we had a pretty good number of players core commanders and so this stretched over probably a two-month period uh and we ended up we we fought at gettysburg briefly but we ended up with a three-day battle at emmitsburg which is about 25 miles south of gettysburg and um it was a fabulous very large table altar of freedom and i just remember that battle just you know it had everything um we had, you know, these massive stands by Chow commanding. Uh, I think Reynolds was still alive in that scenario. And uh, we're waiting, supposedly Sickles, who was a corps commander there. Uh, I, according to my messages and my expectations, he was supposed to roll in on the, Fed, on the Confederate flank. And he failed to do so. But it turned into a, just a, a we played it over three sessions. And uh, it was just very memorable. A lot of, yeah. a lot of great times.
Yeah, I mean that sounds incredible. It's uh, I I think I've I've seen some. It may have been a Vicksburg campaign that you guys ran, mm-hmm. and that it's written up somewhere on a blog. I think that uh, I, I caught hold of. But I'd love to run the Gettysburg campaign that for the Ultra Freedom at some point. Yeah, and, and get around to that, and just have the time to sort of let uh, that develop and 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 take its own life. Yeah, but that that produced a lot of great memories, and it was a well-run campaign. It's one the, the well, the best you can say about a campaign is you finished it. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so and, many never do. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that was that was a success in that regard, and produced a lot of great moments. Would you say the Civil War is is your? Would it be your desert island period? If if you were washed up on a desert island, do you think that's the one you'd want to take with you? Yeah, I think it would be. Uh, just because um, I always come back to it. I, I I I can have a year or even I think I've had a couple year hiatus sometimes. Uh, but uh, just thinking about that, um, probably because I it's it's the one where I have both the most real experience of the terrain and the and and it's just my imagination is able. Pro- I, I'm sure if I had my six mil miniatures and some dice, I could you know occupy myself for quite a while just out yes. of memory yeah. and imagination. So. It's probably that to be pra- both practical and and of interest. So yeah, you you live in the general area, don't you? That's pretty much surrounded by Civil War history. Yeah, we're in, we're I'm in Lancaster here, so we're on the other side of the Susquehanna, which was the you know the other, just the other side of the Susquehanna. Wrightsville was the furthest advance of the Confederate Army. At that point, they burned Wrightsville. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're an hour and fifteen from Gettysburg. I actually. Um, I, I'm from Virginia originally, yeah. and uh, we moved up to Gettysburg, uh, Adams County, when I was in uh, late middle school, like ninth grade here. So um, it was a perfect um, storm of interest. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's one. And I've I've been to a fair number of the battlefields. The great thing, this, as I mentioned, Vicksburg, uh, none of us on that trip from the club, from the channel, pardon me for that, um, had been to Vicksburg or really, I I don't know if anybody had been to any of the Western battlefields. And that was extraordinary going from having spent, you know, days and days and days at Gettysburg and knowing that very well and Antietam and so forth. It was just a very different battlefield, but it was stunning and the scale and the terrain. It was, it was, it was eye opening really. So it's still, which is great as, as something I've studied for, you know, most of my life, it's still, continues to surprise me in some ways are the western battlefields as well preserved as they are in the east uh vicksburg is probably the most well preserved uh it's in the late uh uh 19th century they uh the veterans from that war the western veterans um organizations came together and began form committees of veterans and they would sit there and haggle about what really happened and no uh, you were here and i was here so yeah. and the statuary that grew out of that period it's it's very well established the other battlefields i've been there personally my understanding is that uh shiloh uh has a fair amount to offer uh and stones river murfreesboro yeah. uh, i'm told uh th- that it's the the tree lines and the the landscape is very well preserved it's not developed so less less statuary there my understanding but more of the understanding the battlefield yeah so. sure uh, uh, 
And of course, uh, were you involved in the game on the Gettysburg battlefield that was yes, filmed? Yes, yes, I was. Uh, I commanded. Yeah. I was Longstreet in that yeah. uh, that game. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that must have been an incredible experience. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was wild. I mean, it would have been fun to play on Gettysburg or at Gettysburg uh, to play in Lee's headquarters. Uh, was was quite interesting. Um, and the game itself was just, it's a really, it was a really good game and a great time playing against. We played with the American Battlefield Trust and mm-hmm. some of the park rangers. And it was interesting, their post-game thinking about, you know, how it informed them. They they learned, even though they're, again, experts in their field, uh, wargaming it uh, showed them something they hadn't really appreciated as well as as, as they did this time. So. And Gary Edelman's enthusiasm just absolutely <laughs> shines, doesn't it? I've watched most of his videos with the American Battlefield Trust, yes. uh, where he actually walks the ground. But his enthusiasm in, in that, and, and of course in the game that we'll be talking about later, the that's Brandywine right. game, that's uh, right. you know, he, he comes across as a, a real genuine character that's got a love for the history. So uh, to, to involve non-war gamers, as you, as you do... Um, it, it, that sort of breaks the fourth wall almost in that you're bringing in people that mm-hmm. have got no experience. And I, I think you said this in one of the pod, one of the development podcasts. It may have been the one post uh, the Brandywine game where you said that the guys there uh, looked as though they were a little bit caught in the headlights initially. But after about half an hour, <laughs> they mm-hmm. were straight into it and, and got grasped the whole concept and were rolling dice, making decisions yeah. uh, as though they were veterans. That's right. No, they, they, that, that's a good recollection. Uh, it, one, it was extraordinarily hot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yeah. uh, but uh, Hotter than 21 degrees Celsius. It was in the 90s. Fairly. Really? Gosh. So, right. okay, uh, yeah. Which is not unusual for that time of the summer here in yeah. uh, central PA or over towards Philly. But yeah, they, they really, it was very interesting because they were, they had that initial shock of one, you know, lack of familiarity with the concept and the rules. Uh, but, you know, as soon as their dander got up, they, uh, you know, their competitive response kicked in, I think when yes. people really faced with like, you know, it's one thing to lose a few roles, but to be wiped off the table is starts to get you engaged. And it was, it was <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You start to feel it very much, don't you? It becomes, yeah. becomes a visceral thing. Um, okay, but before we get on to the, the rules writing, and I, I definitely want to talk about Live Free or Die and uh, any future project, projects, but um, you are part of uh, Little Wars TV, but the actual club is Army Group York, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's yes. right. So how long have you been a member there, Tom? Uh, yeah, about a, about 10 years Coming on 10, I think. Um, so I had known these fellows. They've been Army Group York, uh, or at least that core group, Chow and Greg and Keith, so forth. I think they started gaming probably in 2001. Uh, and it was at the comic store in York. There's a twin okay. one here in Lancaster, and there was a comic store over there. And before I officially joined Army Group York, I would uh, come across them in the comic store. I think I played a couple games. I was over there... Um, there was a DBA group at the time, and that was, you know, a, a quick game for me to do. On, but I didn't go over a lot on Mondays. It was usually Sunday. But either way, 
I met them. And then when Live Free or Die came out and Greg started running it at conventions here, and a lot of the conventions are here in Lancaster, oddly enough. But um, so I would sign up for his games uh, yeah. and play in those. And he at one point said, hey, we, we're going to have a permanent club now. Uh, uh, you know, you know, let me know if you'd like to come over and and and, you know, visit. And so uh, I reached out soon after that and um, went over and uh you know, it was it's been great ever since yeah. it's uh, it really has been an extraordinary. Uh, I mean, I'm, it's probably the most regular thing I've done outside of work in the sense of how many Monday nights a year, you know, and early on, it's it probably it gives and takes over the years. But early on, those first few years, it was like, uh, you know, it was a, it was it was really wild. You Every week was a different game. Yeah. And, um, you know, you just got exposed to a lot of rules and stuff that you just didn't have a chance to get to before. Sure. And and that clubhouse of yours is just incredible, isn't it? It certainly yep. looks it from the pictures and the videos. Yeah, it's uh and it's uh it's about to expand. Uh so Greg um uh owns that building and um it's uh, has tenants and so forth. It's an old industrial building or warehouse in York. Um and uh so we're expanding that but uh yeah it's it's a, it's a great space it always fits three tables and a bar which is and then a basement to store things so it's a it, i mean it really has been very functional the idea that we'll have even more space is is mind-blowing really so it'll just be about leaving more games up which we do anyway um and also you know maybe more lounge area and board games so there, there's a lot of work to be done to to transition that, but uh, it'll be it'll be wild. Yeah. Uh, so around about three tables, you've got the bar. So do you generally have three games on per night, or uh, does that vary? Once upon a time, I'd say the average is about one and a half these days. Uh, may, a lot of times, and and I don't know why it's but we there's so. Typically, people put out a call. Hey, I, I'd like to use two tables on, you know, June the 12th or whatever. Yeah. And I'm going to run this and I'll seat four to six. And um, and then you see who shows up. Usually people, some people respond, say, I definitely want a seat. And, you know, you can sort of count on it. The third table is always usually there for, hey, not enough, too many people for the big game or somebody just wanted to come in and throw something together. So I, it's often two. It's every now and then you'll get three. Uh, yeah. but that's that's kind of rare just because again it's it's getting the right number of people on a consistent basis uh that you know it's uh, it's the whole point of people would rather play in a larger group usually you know yeah. for or if everybody can fit great more the merrier sure uh so it use it tends to be a four to six player and then two guys off to the side you know yeah. doing something different yeah, and I, I take it you, you don't film on on club nights. Is is that kept a separate thing from the filming that you do for the channel? Yeah, that's uh, generally been the intention, and it certainly is now the case. There was a period, uh, probably over the last two years, up until end of last year, where we would take pictures and maybe short film of just some stuff on Monday to put on the Patreon site. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't formal. Like there was no narrative or um, interviews or that sort of thing. It was just more mm. like, hey, here's some material. And, and again, I, I viewed it as part of um, 
really what I think the the interest people have in the club uh, is, you know, from a distance, I'm a, you know, vicarious member, right? And yeah, yeah. So it's, it's you know, share with people what you're doing, and people really seem to enjoy that. So, uh, but I think in general, the sentiment is much more, and it, it's been pretty strong, but I think it's now much more, Mondays are for club gaming. So, yeah. you know, because what happens is, um every Monday would end up being a play test or becoming, you know, a prep for it. And it's fine. It was fun, enjoyable, yeah, yeah. but you miss some of the spontaneity sometimes of, Hey, I'm just suddenly this grabbed my attention this week. I've got the managers. I'm going to do it. Let's throw a game together. Sure. And then I, I know you've already mentioned um, about the conventions that you'd attend. And I know that you, you crop up on some of the uh, convention reports that, the the team do are they do they form a big part of your your own hobby life getting getting out to Historicon and Cold Wars? Uh, you know it's interesting. It's it's less so after I joined the club. Uh, okay. So I mean, partly it's we just have this luxury of games every week. Uh, now the the nice thing is the conventions the conventions are always a great time to see people that you don't see all the time and you know I've met a lot of people over the years so I enjoy them very much but I no longer I, you know early on it was probably like you know a decade or so ago I was always had a bigger shopping list right yeah okay right and now you know that excitement isn't quite what it used to be because I yeah. sort of have you know things or I don't wait for the convention obviously but. They're fun, and it's fun to have that organized game. I'm going to put on a game. I'm going to get it organized. It won't, you know, it should be a standout game. And uh, and then they've moved the conventions around a bit. A couple in Lancaster. They tried Philadelphia, Valley Forge. They finally settled for Historicon, which is the main one in the east, uh, at the Marriott in downtown Lancaster, which is a – Lancaster is a great town, great nightlife restaurants and so forth. And since they've had that there – they started the year before COVID. Uh, it's it's a real it's it's a real treat. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. As compared to the previous hotels, which were often uh, quite, uh, uh, they weren't very exciting, and the you know they were just places that would fit that many people. But the sure. Marriotts, the Marriotts, a nice venue. So I think it's added an extra excitement to the conventions. Yeah. So Historicon is that next? Is that your next? That's right. Big one, yeah. Yeah, July nineteenth through twenty second. Um, so yeah, we've. Uh, I, I'm running one game. I'm running uh, Battle of Brandy Station, okay. uh, and um, then we're doing our Korea uh, episode, which should be out. Uh, should be out. I think next week, um, and that will be rerun at the convention. Uh, Dave and I will run it, and Greg. Greg always runs something, and then Miles has uh, uh, his Peleliu, uh game that he's going to run, doing his usual Iron Man, uh, running it, I don't know, 15 times or so. <laughs> that guy has some stamina. <laughs> <laughs> he does. They're exhausting to me. I mean, I, I find them very enjoyable, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do one or two, and I'm like, okay, I've fulfilled my... <laughs> contribution to the hobby so yeah 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 i mean you'll know this but uh conventions are a, a completely different beast in this country uh obviously you, you went over to the joe six last year which was must have been a great treat for you mm -hmm. um but uh they do tend to be more shopping events uh rather than 
uh, people turning up to play uh, a, a three-hour game or whatever right, it is. Right. People might play for ten or fifteen minutes in a in a what we call participation games. But um, I was at a show uh, last weekend, the Partisan Show, which is uh, probably the crown jewel right. of shows in the UK for um, the uh, the coffee table picture book style game where you, you see the absolute pinnacle of uh, how these games look but uh, I, it is on the bucket list to get over and, and combine uh, a trip to yourselves and get to Historicon and, and experience that whole thing so uh, yeah, hope, hopefully at some point in the future I'll, I'll get there so um, let's, let's go on to rules writing then Tom so um, I Little Wars, uh, sorry, Little Wars, Live Free or Die. Uh, the Live Free or Die project is a couple of years old now, I guess, 18 months or so. Yeah, I, I, two years, two years was the Brandywine episode, so. Oh my God, time flies. Yeah. It does not feel like two years ago, Tom, I have to say. That was a busy summer, too. We did our Vietnam one, which I was extremely busy with, and then yeah. painting at the same time. Yeah for Brandywine and, and writing the rules. So it was a little bit busier than it needs to be, but uh, it was a good time. Well, life is for living. <laughs> you gotta, you got to fill that space. I mean, that Mekong episode was superb, actually. I just congratulate you on that. Oh, thanks. I know it seems like you put a hell of a lot of work into that. Yeah, probably more than you need to sometimes to get the same effect, but it was, it was, it was enjoyable. It was an immersive experience. And, yes. uh, it was. Uh, I'm glad I did it, and we have it. We have it. It sits on top of this bookshelf at the club, right. and we keep threatening to break it out, um, but we haven't. We haven't done it yet. I know we will. Um, mm. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. A slight tangent. That that can be. Um, that's, a, that's a curious thing, isn't it? That we can put a lot of effort into one of these projects. And and build it up and, and and play the game and it works out perfectly and then you put it away and don't touch it again for a couple of years. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? That you know we spend so much of our life preparing these things or so much of our hobby time preparing these things and then I'm not sure we get the value for money out of it that we put into it. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true and it happens enough times to be a, a certainly a phenomenon. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know why it does. It's it's so weird. We'll, we'll do stuff like that and a lot of work. And then, like I said, you end up playing more American Civil War or, you know, easier and lighter things to pick up. I, and yeah. I think that's part of it is, yeah. you know, even just rolling in on Monday, everybody tries to get there at a certain time. And, you know, it, it's just fun to be able to. And frankly, it's fun to finally fulfill. I, I, I told my wife over the years that. You know, because she's seen me go on some pretty deep, like, endurance, like, got to get, got to build, yeah. paint as many figures by this point, do all this type of stuff. And she looks at it like, why? And yes. and I always explain, well, once I get enough base of figures, I won't have to do that again. No. <laughs> <laughs> For this project. <laughs> For this project. But the, the next project. The one, the one area that you always come back to, like the ACW or, or Napoleonics for me, like the six mil, you know, I have enough that I probably... There's no excuse to ever paint again just to do a scenario. Yeah, yeah. But you always pick one of these up where you're like, this is the latest, greatest thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So. It, well, it, it keeps the the wheels of the hobby industry uh, going, doesn't it? Because yeah. if, if ever you've bought your last figure, 
then that's a really sad day, isn't it? It's a sad thought to think you've bought your last figure. Well, it seems to be less and less of an achievable goal these days, especially with all the 3D stuff and everything right. else happening, where you look at, and, you know, I like the heft of metal and everything else, but I see the designs on some of these things and the quality, and I'm like, man, that just looks, I, you know, and I don't have a resin printer. I have an FDM, but and I'm still always debating it. But you can buy them elsewhere. But, yeah, it's... Uh, it is interesting in the hobby to be, it's one of the few things I'm involved, probably the only thing I'm involved in where you'll see these group sort of mood things where people, so everybody suddenly gets interested. And part of that's marketing, right? It's yeah, 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 definitely. We want you to be interested in like, you know, the um, uh, ECW or, um, you know, uh, War of the Roses suddenly. Mm -hmm. But it starts this chatter and this noise in the background. You think there's only... You're the only one talking about it. Next thing you know, it's it's the theme for the season. Yeah. And it's kind of fun. It's kind yeah. of fun to, yeah, yeah. to ride that while it's it's interesting and everybody's talking about it. But it's also cool because if you do it, then a year later, it's like, oh, we still have that, you know, on a lark, we can break it out and do it. So, yeah, yeah. So so on the rules writing front, then um, prior to the Live Free or Die project, has you been involved in published rules before? No, not published, uh, not by any means. So um, the the only rules I've done prior to, I did a lot of scenario writing or even some campaigns that we use for the clubs or I've used elsewhere. So um, that was the extent, uh, you know, Greg. Uh, so, I mean, Greg was the driving force of the rules and uh, I was uh, I'm a good sounding board for him, I think. And I think we, we have a good back and forth on exploring these things um and uh it's it started off there with okay we're gonna do uh we knew we were gonna do brandywine we'd work with gary and battlefield trust and it was coming up and we had like two years i think to think about it we started wow. getting figures some people were painting them as usual it all came together in the last you know three four months yeah. and you know one of my tasks or the one i was i had been looking for awi rules that i like you know i had i've probably my most expensive extensive 28 mil collection are awi and um so i'd always played around with rules british grenadier and you know i like them and you know there was nothing particularly wrong with any of them i just um, as we tried them at the club or discussed them, you know, there was always something a little bit missing or just didn't gel. You know, it was just one yeah, of those yeah. things. We couldn't get a consensus, really. So we decided, OK, um, we maybe we should write our own. And the, the real impetus to writing our own was we're going to play with people who don't play war games very much. So it can't be a hundred page rule set that you try to distill and teach and, and you're going to miss most of the nuances anyway. So it's going to be for a group of people who can pick this up and play in an afternoon if they've never played a war game. So that was one criteria. Uh, the next criteria that we came up with was uh, it had to fit on four pages. Now, I don't know if it was exactly four at first, but it was the intent that the same reason, because it's for a uh, non-professional, so to speak. Uh, we want it to be uh, light, uh, but capture as many details as we can. So within those parameters, we started playing around and we looked at a lot of rules and uh, Greg had uh, grabbed Andy Callen's old uh, loose files um, as and tossed it over and you know, it became pretty clear. It was like, wow, that's a that's a great starting point. Like, I mean, it's it's a great set of rules. We might yeah. tweak it for this or that. And and 
adding in the issue of we it, it seemed a little too slightly more detail than we wanted for or complications um, than we wanted. But we started with that and we kept a lot of uh, it. It was interesting how it went. And if you listen to the podcast, you can follow that. But it was like, let's we, we went through the sections like command and control and movement and firing and morale. And, and it was sort of like, you know, we'd come back and say, do you like this section? Do you, you know, and, and it was sort of like you'd like part of this. You'd like all of this and, you know, none of this. And and as we went through there, it's clear at the end it's a it's a tribute to loose files. But uh, it took on a life of its own. And, uh, you know, we've been I've been pretty thrilled with the battles it produced. I mean, they're the type of game I like, which is when you're done, you're like, thank you. May I have another. Right. It's, yes. it's satisfying on many levels and not exhausting, which is yes. also one of my main criteria <laughs> these days. Less like doing the taxes. And, you know. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I was I visited a friend this afternoon and I had a very similar conversation to say, I am done with 100 page rule books because I haven't got the energy. I haven't got the time. I haven't got the inclination yeah. to, to read the nuances and, and learn the intricacies of, of huge tomes. I need two, three or four page rule sets. Um, and we were actually talking about Ruthless, uh, the, mm-hmm. the uh, Wild West set from Mark. Very elegant. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I'm, I'm absolutely with you there. I, I need simplicity in my life at my age. <laughs> yeah. So uh, th- there's a long gestation period then for, for Brandywine. You said uh, you know, a couple oh, of years. Probably, I think it was, pr- it was a year and a half, maybe two, just yeah. from the very initial, hey, we're going to do Brandywine. Um because it came soon after Gettysburg, and uh, Gettysburg had to be 2019, I think. Um, and so we we knew we we played around with a couple of scales, and yeah, it was it was a long gestation. I think um, it was partly coordinating a bunch of people and just sustaining the interest, because it was sort of again nothing really clicked right away. As yeah. This one, it was going to be different enough. I mean, we knew we could produce terrain that was interesting, but, uh, you know, we thought about the 28 mil um, and uh, but and we painted a lot of those. We'd use those in a Saratoga scenario that wasn't filmed, but um, but that didn't feel quite right. And, you know, we were coming up from six. It was kind Mm -hmm. of like we thought about six. uh, But when we started playing around with the 10 mil, and it took a while to paint. Like I, I was actually very slow in painting those because I'd been very used to six and I could handle 28 slow pace six. I could crank out. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure as you found, I mean, uh, I, are you doing 10 or are you doing? Yeah. 10, 10? Yeah. Pendrucken, yeah. Yeah. And uh, they really, they take paint quite well and they really, they're well worth the effort and you get pretty productive, you know, pretty quickly. So it all started to, once we got, everybody got a little experience. It's like, okay, this is doable. We're going to get enough figures out of this. Cause I mean, it's a, it's a massive battle in terms yes. of even in, you know, live free or die. It's a, it's a lot of, a lot of bases to paint. So 
Was there a project manager for that then that said, look, we need to buy this many figures, this is the order of battle, these are the figures we need, we'll divide this out amongst the group and, and get everybody painting, or was it more ad hoc than that, do you think? No, ad hoc. So I, I think uh, in terms of figures, I believe Steve uh, Steve took the lead and liaison with Pendragon after we decided to go that route, and then I and uh, worked with Ed to get the orders of battle uh, and then interpret that roughly to basing, even though we didn't know the rules quite yet, yeah. just in terms of, you know, using the variety of rules out there. You could go different directions, but um, converting general uh, British Grenadier would have worked fine, too. But so I, I, I suppose I, I think I managed the spreadsheet eventually on the ordering and the uh uh doling those out we actually had to go back with a couple of orders it was one of those things we did our initial order and then as you're going once you really got your head into it and realized oh wait a minute we need more of these guys and we need more of these guys and so we, i think we did two or three rounds of orders after one big bulk one but um yeah we doled it out to everybody everybody painted it and it you know it came together um enough time for play test you know we had yeah. We always, you always have to play test. I mean, particularly if you're going to film it, we've of never course, not yes. done a play test or something. Yeah, the uh, and of course there's a big body of water in between you and Pendragon, so the uh, the delivery. I don't know what the delivery times would be, but I, I'm guessing it uh, wouldn't be so quick. Three weeks, yeah. okay. Well, it's actually not too different to yeah. to here, and I, I'm only about. 150 miles down the road from them, so. Ah, is that right? <laughs> yeah. It's the production, it's not the shipment. It's yeah, the, of course. Yeah, on the big orders especially. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I think they're they're quite good. I mean, it, it's shame on me if I can't figure out, you know. But it, it's one of those things. Even my most recent projects with uh, Great War or ACW, I mean, I, I always end up ordering again because, you know, I, I, I put off. It's one of those things. I finally have a window to get an order in yeah. and uh, then inevitably once you get painting, you know, a month or so later, it's like, ah, yeah, there's a gap. <laughs> there's, but yeah. that's okay. It gives you a chance to try. So I'll, I'll sample their, uh, their German line here and see. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sure. So um, the, there was a, how many figures do you think that you ordered in total and got onto that, those tables? Cause it was a multi-table game, wasn't it? I'd have to pull up the spreadsheet. Yeah, there were four tables. I believe there were like a hundred and there were 300 bases involved, I think. Okay. okay. Yeah, that's my rough recollection. Roughly four uh, figures a base. That, you yeah, know, so 12. Over a thousand figures. Yeah, so. over a thousand rings a bell yeah. as the. So, again, no one person did that. Everybody did probably, you know, equal proportions of that. Um mm. And uh, so it was manageable once we figured out what we were doing. And uh, since then, you know, I went on to Greg and I did the Trenton episode, yeah. uh, which was a, that was a great project. That was actually after Brandywine. And I was just like, yeah, it was so much fun. Uh, and I always wanted to do Trenton. Mm. Um, and uh, so that came together. And we finally, you know, we committed and did winter bases and uh yeah. But that uh, that was, and now I still set it on a fairly large inventory of because I I picked up their stuff for like Saratoga, um, which I think Dave is gonna do, and maybe I'll contribute some figures to that. But um, yeah, there's uh, that's one of those again where um, 
you know, I think it, it comes and goes as how much we play it, you know. Yeah, yeah. On, on that rules writing process then, and I, I think I've mentioned this already, you um, you recorded co- several conversations between yourself mm. and Greg and other club right. mates as you were playtesting and, and released those as a podcast series, which I'll put a link in the show notes to this because it is a great listen and a, sort of a peek behind the curtain of mm-hmm. um, those decisions that you went through. And it's, it's a fascinating journey from when you first, find loose fires files in american scramble and and decide that that's going to be your basis and you're not sure exactly how much that's going to change between first looking at them and, and the actual game and then eventually there's considerable change albeit right. the, the uh the original genesis is definitely in in andy callan's set but that that it, those iterations that you went through can you remember any particular stumbling block that you thought man i don't think we're going to get through this this is this this problem that we've come across here is just gonna ruin the whole project uh you know honestly once we started down that path uh it 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 got a lot easier so i think once we figured out because like i said we had dabbled with other rules and other approaches and conversions uh once we started with that it was like okay this is something workable here and in our original discussions were, how do you drop things out of it? Again, just to streamline it so we could, because, you know, when we were doing this, it's not so much, hey, we're going to write these rules and publish them. There's always that, you know, idea that maybe it'll be useful enough to do that. It was really, let's get Brandywine done, right? So, yeah. um, but I think uh, the the thing we found was, um <laughs> It really was in the playtesting. It was less in the rules. It was when you get the playtest, you run into things, which you run into any rules process is uh, what do you do with uh, small one base units that are left on the table and can basically gum up the works for somebody's offensive. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And those are that's a very common issue, which is like how how much when should these guys go away? Right. Yes. When when is there? And I'm a big fan of that. Like in the other stuff I'm working on is, I like a cleaner table. Like if these guys are no longer combat effective, um, you know, well then let's move them away. Yeah. So one, it's less confusing. I get it. There are swirling melees and stuff, but in general, it gets in the way of one. Uh, as as the game goes along, people are getting more tired and there's debris on the table and people are getting confused and, you know, it's not mm-hmm. as, it doesn't give them as I think the best shot of making a good decision when they can't determine what, what's on the table. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big one. The other one was, um, uh, we, we late discovered the need for opportunity fire and a charge. Uh, and that was, I think we were play testing with Chow and that was one where it was kind of, I, we, I think we had an inkling of that where, because uh, if you charged in columns originally, in the way we one of the iterations was, they were pretty nigh unstoppable. Uh, right. And uh, so once you introduce opportunity fire, which is kind of a yeah, of course, that resolved that. Um, I think um, the other one uh, in terms of uh, there was a whole question around morale. One of the early playtests we like. You know, I like morale that ripples through an army, right, a little bit. But when we first play tested it, uh, we had massive routes, like these chain reaction routes, which didn't feel right. So you end up 
constraining that. And that, that also goes to being just, you know, I, I'm not enough of a rules writer to have a philosophy, but I have, as a consumer, I certainly know what I like. And one of the things there again, is I like, um, I like evidence of a factor like, okay, morale is a factor. It should be represented somewhere in the game, but let's not be too, too literal about it or we end up with just stupid things happening. So you should have some morale, uh, but at some point you may make a decision of, okay, that's represented well enough and now we're going to cut it off and not overly complicated, you know, beyond that. So those are the types of, I mean, my recollection, it's been a couple of years, but I yeah, do sure. all those as being, and it's funny because I, I say this because I'm I'm going through the same thing now with one of the things I'm working with, uh, ACW Calvary Rules, yeah. and it's very similar. And they started off based on live free or die. Okay. So we took live free or die and we used it for the Richmond campaign, the seven pines battle we did down there. We altered live free or die for ACW and it's pretty workable. I think it's a little bit like, well, there's some pretty good rule sets for ACW regimental and do you really need to add to it? But for our, again, we were trying to address seven pines and we're going to play with park rangers who don't war game. So, But I think I think when you take that approach, both in terms of uh, a more amateur audience and space constraints, then you end up with, I think, some pretty decent rules that, again, they get the job done and they leave plenty of room for people who want to tinker with them at the edges. I think that's what's great about the rules, too, is because I see on the Facebook group and others for live free or die, there's a lot of ideas out there. And I, I mean, I think those are awesome because it's that type of system that you don't like something or you think it's a little unbalanced in this scenario, then, you know, fix it. Yeah. And I think traditionally in the hobby when, and I'm talking years ago now, but rule sets would come out and people would tinker with them and put house rules in and, and, and put their own feeling on it. And then, it seems as and and this is just my perspective it seems that we we've we're going through a phase where you've got almost these coffee table rule books like black powder or the almost ubiquitous aren't they like chain of command or black powder or hail caesar and people want to play them absolutely strictly as Mm -hmm. written and seem less willing to tinker with the mechanics of those because I don't know if it's because of who the authors are or um, just because there's such a groundswell of, of people that will play these games. Um, but then live free or, or die for me is, is very much in that tradition where you can, once it's in your hands, it's your product to do with what you want. And if you want to adapt it for the American civil war or the war of 1812, or uh, maybe change the charge sequence. And I know there's been some chatter on the Facebook group, mm-hmm. recently, hasn't there about changing one or two things, but that's great. Don't, don't force it on everybody, but if that's how you want to play that game, but what you've done is given that base, you've given that starting point, which gives a great game. And, and serve the purpose that you set out for to be able to uh, play a lot, a very large game with people who've never war game before. Um, uh, and, and 
it, it's it's a set of rules for me. From and I've not played yet, but I've I've read it and I've watched the videos and followed the the Trenton game and the Princeton and Hobkirk's Hill live play that Greg and uh, Josh did, and it, it just really grips me <laughs> as the sort of game that I want to I want to be playing, uh, and hence I'm I'm painting a lot of figures for it now. Um, so I, I think for me because of these games like and I'm I'm going on a soapbox now. I'm, no, please. I, I'm, I'm interested to see where this goes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, these uh, these coffee table rule books, as I call them, like Black Powder, and this is not to dismiss people who play Black Powder, but um, they they seem to take over the hobby space, mm-hmm. particularly on YouTube. If you type Black Powder into YouTube or Hail Caesar. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of channels out there that are playing those rules or chain of command or bolt action. Um, And whether or not that stifles creativity, because people just see that as a one stop shop to play those rules. They can pick it up and uh, pick up black powder and there'll be somebody maybe in in town who who also plays them. So you've got that familiarity. Um, But I, I wonder if that creativity has been stifled a little bit. So things like Live Free or Die, which are four pages and can't possibly cover every single aspect that you might come across on the tabletop because there'll always be something right. unexpected um, that, that'll crop up and, and, and two, two friends who are gaming will come to a decision as to how they're going to resolve that and say, sure. well, let's have a plus one or a minus one or let's 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 resolve it like that. So. That that that's my soapbox piece there. That uh, I I think what you've done with Live Free or Die and uh, is give people that tool to take away and, and grow as they as they wish, yeah. and 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 add their own creativity to it. Absolutely fine as it is because it's clearly been well tested. It did the job it was designed to do. Mm-hmm. Brandywine, I can't wait to play. I've um, Hopefully in the next couple of weeks or so, I'll, I'll uh, have the figures uh, done um, uh, to, to play it as it is. But uh, yeah, so I'll take my hat off to you, Tom uh, and Greg and, and the other guys, because I, I it made me smile on one of the video. Uh, sorry, one of the podcasts where you said um, any any sort of rule testing that you might do in the club. If you, if you give it to Ed and Miles, they will find the break point of it. <laughs> so they will find the, the, the way to wheedle around something and, and, and get an advantage in the rules if needed. Did I say that? Yeah, I, I that's yeah. absolutely true. Uh, yeah, no, that's, they will, Ed will, Ed, Ed, you always want Ed on your side. Um, <laughs> if you want to find that rule situation to exploit yes uh or or to protect yourselves from uh misinterpretation of the rules and and <laughs> certainly finds the weak point in a set yeah. of rules, i think fairly fairly well and it's a great test but yeah i mean the bigger point there is that anything we do is a product of the club yeah uh, in the sense that i mean there you know, there's a brain trust there. I was just joking the other day. I'm running this play test for Brandywine soon, and I wanted to schedule it. So I got, you know, the right density of folks around the table who will pick it apart and who can, you know, push it in the right direction. So uh, and that's really that was the most fun of any of the stuff we've done is that um, that back and forth with the people. But it's interesting on your soapbox. Um, it's a uh, and, and I like I mean, I'm a 
I I played a lot of Lardy stuff and Chain of Command. I haven't played it for a few years, but played it pretty well. But to your bigger point, I think there's two issues. One, I also I'm one of my big issues, and I try to get this message across whenever anybody asks me. But for new players, um, it's there's no rules, right? There's the miniatures don't go with the rules, and there's there's no linkage that you can't break if you want to. One, they're your 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 products, but um, I think some people come into the hobby through different avenues. They get into rule sets that are very restrictive in terms of intellectual property, or you need to use our miniatures, or you need to do, and that's that's very common. Those are the most some of the most popular rules in the world, uh, historical or other. And so people get that. And so I think it's always interesting with people who you're talking to who are getting into this first time or transitioning into historicals like, don't worry about it. You know, buy buy the miniatures you want, base them in a reasonably generic way. Uh, there's pretty common ways to do it um, that will probably be used well, for almost any rule set you pick up. Right. Yeah, so don't sure. get. So, I mean, part of that for me is just making sure people are aware of it. Hey, doesn't I did a podcast just recently with some folks who were doing it. They were very Warhammer coming into it. They wanted to get into historicals. And that was just like, you got to break down that idea that, you know, you're restricted in any way. Yeah. I think the coffee table books are interesting. Um, I think, I think, again, it's one of those things where they're there, they seem easy to pick up and they're, they, they produce a game. Um, I think, uh, I think they're a good starting point. Um, I think one of the challenges, though, with with fiddling with these things is one, you're right. Some people may not want to mess with them, but some rules, it's very hard. We found this with Andy Cannon's rules, even that the the light surgery we wanted to do on that turned into more serious surgery because you found different parts of the rules were linked to each other. Right. Yes. The and control. And so one of the things I think live free or die, and it's something I strive to do and uh, is modularize things like those systems command and control from morale or from this so that you can link them but you can also fiddle with them more without breaking the whole rule set or or causing unintended consequences elsewhere in the rules and i think that's a problem with the larger more complex rules it's very hard to pull in a thread and not have it impact yeah Rules. have unintended consequences down the line yeah that, yeah, that, yeah that you, you can't see um i know that one of the whenever little wars do reviews one of the um major categories is support for rules once once they've been released i, th- I thought it was interesting I, I re-listened to the episode where you speak to andy callan uh about his rules writing mm-hmm. process uh and he, he he seemed to be very much of the attitude that, well, he's done his job. <laughs> Doesn't need to do anything else now. It's out there. Yeah. <laughs> and if there's no financial reward for me, why would I want to be uh, right. uh, doing the support to, to keep this thing going? Uh, which, you know, is absolutely fair point. Um, but live free, live free or die has certainly gone the route where you've, you've provided a lot of support for the rules and uh, you know I, I guess that would get a 10 out of 10 in a, in a future review of, uh, sure. of the rules uh so uh, the major one for me is the is the scenario book so mm-hmm. how, how did that come about how did you uh prepare and develop that 
Well, uh, that one is so Greg probably did the vast amount of work there and we bounced uh history you know i'd review them for uh things greg is a machine when it comes to producing scenarios really uh if you look back at his uh altar of freedom both the all quiet on the potomac and the western one um i mean before i knew him it was just like impressive the output you know the number of scenarios you got for the product so with the uh live free or die you know i think the first thing he assembled was the stats right just typical casualties for battles and size of battles and so forth. And then he seems to go through it with a, um, you know, just a framework that kind of kicks out, you know, number of units to represent a number of bases and so forth. And then looks mm. for the, so I think that's, that is very productive there where I would get involved would be the unique aspects of a battle. Or, and I'm very big on, um, you know, are we capturing the essence? I mean, you can take any battle and say, pick three main events or essences of that battle that you have to represent to say you're really at, you know, Antietam or you're sure. elsewhere. So to me, that's kind of the look for that. And then also the balance of, um, you know, like Trenton's a great example. Uh, that's one we, we went back and forth on that. And we play tested that probably two or three times just because you're trying to reproduce or at least allow people the chance of reproducing something that was a pretty wild long shot mm. to begin with, you know, a snow squall, you know, troop, the, everything worked in, you know, heaven clearly smiled on Washington that day. Yeah. Um, and that's hard to reproduce. Uh, and so, you know, in that case, we added more random setup stuff to try to get at that. But, uh, yeah, I think the my own I think Greg produced. I mean, in terms of support, um, you know, I do think he's he's probably the gold standard of it in terms of the industry, because, again, for a small investment in the rules and then the scenarios, you get more scenarios than you probably ever play. Yeah. Um, and uh, that uh, I think he does that very well. So uh, I hope to, you know, figure out how to do that efficiently, although my goal is my belief is uh, given that idea that you'll never play all those scenarios. You can probably launch a rule set with, you know, three scenarios and of different sizes and, you know, which, which is in the main book. And then he follows on with the yeah. 10 or 12. Mm. But we, you know, it's interesting. I don't, we had a podcast at one point, Greg and I on war game design or scenario design. Yes. Um, and there it's interesting. Cause I remember his question was, do you try to reproduce the battle as it happened? And my answer, I forget the exact question, but my feeling is I, I would love people to play a scenario twice. One, you try to at least give them the ingredients or the odds to get something that looks like the battle, right? But then give them enough variations they can introduce to come up with a fairly different battle. Yeah. Um, you know, Bruce Weigel, his scenario books for like the 1870 uh, stuff and 1866, he always does a great job with that. He does a very in-depth historical analysis of the battle. And then he gives you, you know, two or three tweaks you can do, starting conditions to end up with something, you know, maybe mildly different or very different. 
I, I wonder, um, going back to the Trenton one, and particularly the video that you released around that, I wonder what Keith's attitude to the balance was on that, because oh. his look seemed to really suck on that. I guess he burnt the dice after that. That's, that's why we play the game, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's it that was a that was a funny one. He took it quite well, but yes. uh, yeah, yeah. he just he could and that's so funny when you're when you're running a game or, you know, refing a game and you've you know, you hope it's you know, there you see sometimes those things you're like, Holy mackerel, you just can't <laughs> You can't legislate for it sometimes, can you? That's right. No, no. So, um Live Free or Die is out in the world, um, but there's more to come from Tom. I'm hearing there's you've got one, a finger in one or two other pies, rules writing wise. Yeah, I've uh, so after Live Free or Die, that, that experience is a lot of fun, and uh, I thought, look, here's a good framework to start a couple of different periods I could do one. Um, but uh, the one that a period that's always grabbed me and and just is American Civil War cavalry operations. Um, you know, it's often, and I don't want to exaggerate this, it, it can be dismissed because it's not Napoleonic cavalry, right? It's not, mm. you don't get the same battle level, you know, differentiator. But there's no doubt cavalry in North America shaped almost every major campaign. I mean, the, the, the final resolution of Gettysburg begins at Brandy Station. Yes. Um, the Vicksburg campaign, a key element of Grant's multi-prong uh, final campaign there is Grierson's 600-mile cavalry raid into into Mississippi and and back. So um, I, I just I've always found it a great period, and I I thought look it it needs and I'm okay with this. It needs its bespoke treatment, right? These are not rules that you may use anywhere else other than uh, there might be some other cavalry periods you can think of, but. What I want is a set of rules that let you uh, emphasize the cavalry and put the infantry where, where it may show up in a few of these battles, you know, in a different spot. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the movement should be more dynamic. Um, there should be, um, you know, these swirling cavalry charges. Uh, morale is huge. Rallying. Uh, so all the things you'd find in a normal battle. But I hope uh, and then you add in starting in 1863, leading into the Gettysburg campaign, starting in Northern Virginia, the dismounted cavalry. So all of the U.S. cavalry started as dragoons. I mean, the the pre-war, the, the cavalry regiments were uh, essentially dragoons, and that was their yeah. name. Um, so you had people like Buford, who was an old dragoon. Um, and, you know, in 1863, when the cavalry really, I mean, Stewart had had the run of the place for the previous two years, but as the Union Cavalry is finally getting organized into a corps, um, and you got new, they're promoting younger uh, officers and so forth, um, that whole campaign starts to evolve, and even Stewart, who loved the Sabre, uh, his troops are getting dismounted because he ends up fighting a lot more delaying actions. Uh, he fights delaying actions in the Loudoun County to screen Lee's columns moving north, does that very successfully over about four days. Um, and then Buford turns around, you know, within three weeks at Gettysburg and and repeats the same dismounted efforts. And it was crystallizing then uh, just how effective those were. Uh, and and but cavalry still continued 
even 1864, 1865, you, you could still have charges and differentiate. Yeah. So anyway, I started with live free or die as the basis of that. Live with that for probably about, I mean, about, I've been working on this for about a year, not really working, just like I originally play tested about a year ago, started painting more figures for it. And then as I, after a few play tests, I tweaked some things. Uh, I really wanted to capture, I mean, one of the key things is you can only use these assets in a certain way until they're useless. I mean, your, your, your cavalry gets blown. Yeah. Um, and so there was, there's an element of managing that. Um, there's certainly the individuals I wanted to capture, some of these key officers like uh, Kilpatrick and Custer and Farnsworth. And, you Kill know, Cavalry, as he was named. That's it? right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, he's, you know, he's, uh, people who fought under him liked him. It's funny. It's one of those, it's like Patton, right? It's like, yeah. uh, it's it being a part of a organization an organization that fights is some is appealing to a certain group of people and to other people. It's, it's less appealing, but he's, uh, it's an interesting cast of characters that bring the federal army or federal cavalry up to the level it obtains by the end of the war. And it's it's an interesting path. Again, a lot of retirements, a lot of very young generals. And when you're promoting Custer and Merritt and Farnsworth, these I mean, they're kids. I mean, yes. and uh, and they 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 are aggressive. And uh, that makes a big difference uh, versus the Confederate cavalry, which was always aggressive. Well, I don't think it's a subject I'm aware that's been tackled before, really, because you're right. Uh, cavalry in American Civil War war games tends to be very much a sideline mm-hmm. um, and, and not really looked at. So I'm not I'm not aware that it's been addressed in in a rule set, a dedicated rule set or adapted rule set to to look at those cavalry engagements. So that that'll be fascinating. Yeah, I, that's that's my impression, too. I think it's always treated within any uh, Civil War, American Civil War rule set, but it's it's at a different level and it's largely dismissed because, again, on the big battles, it's not a except for a few key battles. I mean, it's not at the core of the action. It's on yeah. the flanks and, and there are still big battles. But, yeah, I think it's a uh, it's. It's a fascinating topic to me. I, I've loved it for years. Uh, there's a lot of great books on the topic. Union Cavalry comes, comes of age. Yeah. Uh, the battles of Aldi, Middleburg, and Upperville, which are those Loudoun County, Virginia, eight, June 1863. Um, that's a fascinating, and, and it's close enough that I can go, uh, you know, do a day tour as I did yes. recently with my daughter. So. Uh, yeah, we'll see where it goes. I'm kind of fond of these bespoke rule sets that essentially kind of they're useful for a very limited topic. Yeah. Uh, you know, but again, there, you can generate enough scenarios to make it worth somebody's investment. The key question on this, and I'm I'm very dubious of how many people will bother to invest in the amount of bases you might need. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm starting with Brandy Station and you can break Brandy Station easily into two battles. Uh but um, for the interesting thing you have is you have a massive battle like Brandy Station with, you know, maybe 25 regiments per side, you know, 20,000 men. And in my basing, that's easily, you know, 120 bases. Right. Um, but that's if you're treating each, you know, uh, a 
representing a regiment. What I've done for smaller scale battles like Aldi, where you really only had three regiments on each side, is you now represent each battalion within a regiment. So you get, you know, 12 bases for a regiment organized into three three separate battalions. Yeah. So okay. so it's it's kind of an accordion way to, okay, you can you can bathtub it and do brandy station or take some fairly small like Hanover uh, during the Gettysburg campaign and represent it, get enough figures on the table that, you know, it's worth having a game over. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I look forward to seeing uh, where that goes and uh, I, I'll put my hands up and buy <laughs> a, a, a load of cavalry because uh, I'm one of these... I'm a, probably in the minority that I quite like painting horses. Um, it tends to be something that not many people like doing, but yeah, um, I, I, I've got a formula down, and uh, they, uh, I'm always happy when they're done, and I have them because yes. I, I love them as figures in in whatever period. Yeah, uh, yeah sure, is, sure. is you know, it, it's fun. Any other okay. rules then that uh, you, you're looking at or thinking of or? just mulling over in the brain at the moment that you think you'd like to get involved in? Uh, so there's a, uh, I, I, at some point I may attempt something with Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam is a, is a longstanding interest uh, to me and I've war gamed it a lot, board gamed it a lot. Um, and so I have, uh, I have some thoughts there and, and generally, uh, have never been completely satisfied by uh, what I play. And I like playing now. I think, you know, Charlie company for uh, platoon level stuff is fine. And, but one of my biases is I've always thought Vietnam has been overly represented in cinema, obviously. And the board on the table is uh, that platoon level, or if you're lucky, a company level, when in fact it was the war of big battalions, certainly in the 65 to 68 period um, in 66 and 67. I mean, there's just large division level operations that uh, U.S. is, is conducting. Um, and so that's the scale. So, you know, the stuff we painted up for the Mekong episode We've got all the figures to yeah. to do that, um, but so I'm I'm looking for something I might you know play around with some thoughts there. I've 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 threw something together, and you know one of the interesting things about Vietnam, particularly parts of it, is uh, it's one of those things where the you, it's you're you're better off representing the absence of terrain than trying to fill your table with a lot of terrain that you practically. It looks great, and you yeah. want it for the pictures, but it frankly gets in the way of a lot of especially a large operation, yeah, sweep or something. So um, that one, the Vietnam one, there's a there's a couple of books out that they published at the time or soon after seven firefights in Vietnam, and each one of those is a perfect nugget of a scenario. Right. Uh, but again, they tend to be larger, so that's one. I did. Um, our Riachuelo campaign, uh, or not campaign, game, that was an episode we did. I, I wrote the rules for that. That was a, a ironclad naval, uh, or steam naval. Is a, I love that period, and I have a number of collections for it. And I played all the rules, and they're all fun to some degree. And it was just one of those where, you know, why not? And that, again, that particular battle was a bit more unique than the Typical when there's it's an all steam. It's the first and really only all steam battle 
um, where you had it was that brief window before the ironclads show up. Of but it's all steam. Uh, it's the river, um, the sandbars, and everything else. And so it was a very, I think, you know, nothing really seemed to work for it. So I just wrote a quick set of rules. And I always wanted, if you watched us play naval battles at the club, you know, it's a standing joke that we can never get through a naval battle without either torpedoing our own side. Or, <laughs> or colliding with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not great sailors in the club. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so for this one, I always loved the the card concept from uh, Wings of War, where you basically okay. fought. very simple. So for naval, for me, I thought particularly for these steamships, um, you know, you can play uh, cards to basically tell us which way for all the navigational instead of trying yeah. to master the intricacies of you know manning a ship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about are you going left or right? That's all I need to know for for battle purposes. Because yes. if you're going left and I end up going right and I have advantage, there we go. So that was a lot of fun. I think that could be repurposed um, maybe for one or two other battles. Uh, same rough period. Mm. So it's a left field period that was, wasn't it? The uh, was it the South American yeah. <laughs> yeah. War the Triple Alliance. Yeah, yeah. I, I do love those periods um i mean that's one of the i mean one of the purposes of wargaming for me has always been how to explore a period you know it's just it's one more lever i pull beyond reading or videos or podcast or whatever to okay now i'm going to game it and um and it's fun i mean we really do have a huge selection of miniatures out there uh to do all these novel periods Mm. um and, you know, it's nice if they're small and it's not an over, you know, whelming investment in time or you probably won't do it. But, yeah, there's lots of stuff like that that I'm always I'm always fascinated. I saw this guy post Facebook the other day. He was advertising his new rule set and um, a little off the beaten path, but it's uh, Puritan New England and um, uh, witches. Oh, so, okay. And but he describes it. What's interesting is, OK, right away, the figures look cool because they're, you know, they're sort of ECW type of yes. figures you could repurpose. But it's I'm, it's not clear from the rules if the witches are real or not, because uh-huh. he describes it as a bit of an asymmetric warfare. Right. Uh-huh. It's like a skirmish. But this asymmetry of like, you don't really know what you're dealing with out there. Mm. Are they are they is it supernatural? Are they natives? So I just thought it was a. I just saw that. So I, I love concepts like that where, you know, again, it looks like a light investment and really original thinking. So that reminds me of a, and linking back to Vietnam, it reminds me of a, a scenario in a long defunct war games magazine we had in the UK probably 25 years ago. It's a Vietnam scenario where um, you've got a US convoy, you had to go down a road, travel from one end of the table to the other through um occupied territory uh with a, a local vc uh um battalion there um and the, it <laughs> the the weird thing about it was and i didn't play it but reading it i thought this would really frustrate me was um the u.s player was expecting an ambush at every point every turn in the road that it, it moved this convoy down the road um and and the unique aspect was there was no vc <laughs> there was no enemy so it's just this guy maneuvering a column thinking i'm going to get ambushed at every single right. point right. but there's nobody there that's brilliant that's a, yeah 
Yeah. I mean, whether I would have enjoyed that game. Right. Right. Um, Just uh, before we um, go on to the God's Own Scale virtual library, Tom, you you mentioned um, square bashing that you've played. Mm -hmm. Now, I've played Peter Pig rules for many years. They formed a huge part of my historical gaming, actually. And, And talking about slightly left field topics, I'm currently buried in uh, Mexican Revolution figures ah. that, that they've released. I've got, in fact, just to my side here, I've got four huge boxes of figures that I've just painted for the Mexican Revolution no uh, for, for their uh, for Peter Pig's rule set, uh, fighting for Mexico. So how, do, how did you find square bashing? Because that, that's, a, that's a slightly different take, isn't it, on a war game? Yeah, I, well, I think for the period in the war we were doing um so all the scenarios i've run really been 1918 i do expect to do a verdun one here shortly i thought it worked quite well i mean there was a lot of um you know i think for the i think for the move i like i actually like grid games to some degree it's not what i do all the time but i've got no problem with them because frankly uh not measuring is it's nice not to do it, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and it lets you focus on some other aspects, like in particularly in that. I think what you focus on there are building up your attacks with the right assets and these squares and the backup, yeah. you know, support so that uh, it really rewards that. Um, so I think the squares actually enable that to a great degree where you can clearly see how this these things are going to support this attack. And that's that's I love doing that in that rule set. So. Uh, I end up, as with everything, um, like I think the original, I never played the original Square Bashing. It's the more recent version, 2014 or whatever. But the old one, the squares are like a foot. That's right. And they move them to six. Well, I move mine to four. Mm -hmm. And we played, my scenarios are typically on eight by six. So it's a much broader area. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it works very well for that. Um, there's always a few tweaks that come out of those I think about, but nothing major. So I, I would say as a rule set, uh, everybody enjoyed it. I mean, yeah. I've played, um, it's funny, both the operations I played largely in my painting schedule, but it was, uh, it was the Americans, uh, in the Meuse-Argonne, one of the, the start of the offensive there it was Patton's first day was the scenario as build. And, um, then the one I did most recently was Soissons 1918, yeah. which is also, again, the beauty of that one. I love that scenario. And I actually have a board game of it, too, is it's two U.S. divisions. The first and the second U.S. division go on the flanks of the French Moroccan division. Okay. And it's, it's the largest, um, you know, it's part of the first the second battle of the Sa- uh, Marne counteroffensive. And uh, it's the largest tank battle at that point in the war. And so it's a. It's a great thing. But anyway, square back. Everybody loved it. It worked Good. great. So, yes. yeah. No. My, my photographs in that uh, rule book, uh, Tom, you'll have to look very closely. But in the back, there's a picture of um, playtesters. Oh, no kidding. You'll, fi- you'll find me in the back corner of one of those photos. So. Is that something you've played recently? I, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I love square bashing. I love gridded games, actually. The Mexican Revolution game from Peter Pig is, is gridded. Oh, no kidding. Um, okay as is their Spanish Civil War set, which I've got huge collections for. And uh, for the for square bashing, I've, I've probably I've got, I think, eight or nine armies, um, including Russian Civil War. Ah, that's it's, one of my my list there to get yeah, after. Yeah, so that, that was painted, 
whilst I was ill, actually, uh, the, the sort of um, September, October time last year. Uh, and I, I loved it. I loved doing the research into that. There's a great book from Anthony Beaver that just came yeah. out. Uh, yeah. on the Russian Civil War. So, uh, yeah, so I'm I'm a big fan of... Um, I, I love that period. I, I do. I've, I've been, that's probably been a lot of my reading for the last year as well, is yeah, revisiting yeah. the Russian, because there's a lot of great new work. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating period. But yeah, square bashing, it's a, that's a, it's a charmer of a game. You know what I mean? It's like, when we, it's very satisfying. And the, we talked about Vietnam. Um, Peter Pick have got their own Vietnam rules, which are square based. Right. Um, it is uh, that company level search and destroy mission. Um, but th- there are various games within the rule set. So one of the scenarios is uh, Montanar chasing VC through a valley mm-hmm. and, and, and trying to clear them off. Uh, out of out of off the table. There's a fire based game. There's uh, the the game versus where the you play against the MVA is very different to the game that you play against the VC. So um, might be worth checking out. I, I don't I'll know certainly if it's do that. Boxes, uh, but it might yeah. be worth checking out for you. That's a good recommendation. You never know. Sometimes I mean I was very happy with square bashing and yeah. uh, you know there's been I think uh, in general the club likes Peter Pig rules, uh, yes. but I don't know that we've had a lot of them. So you're no. always like you played Hamry Nine, I think, haven't you? The, the Civil War Naval. Yes. yes, that's right. Yes. Yep. Uh, it's always a fun one. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, uh, Tom, uh, it's been fascinating uh, chatting to you and getting that peek behind the curtain uh, of, uh, of the certainly around the live free or rules. Uh, sorry, live free or die rule set. Um, but uh, before I let you go, there's two questions I ask every guest that comes onto the podcast. First is relatively easy, and that is. Um, that you return and, and come and have another chat with me at some point in the future. Happy to. Yeah. Thank you. A lot of fun. Cheers. And uh, the second is that we have the God's Own Scale virtual library. So this is, um, as it says, a virtual library where people uh, who come onto the podcast will deposit one or two books that uh, may be of interest to listeners um, on, onto the shelves and, we uh, we will eventually uh, have Amazon links to those books. Um, Charles Roundtree, an ex-guest of mine from some time ago, actually curated a, a, a document where uh, all the recommendations for the Godstone Scale Virtual Library were put together with uh, Amazon links. So uh, I'm hoping you might have thought of uh, one or two books to uh, recommend for the library, Tom. Uh, sure. So I'll, I'll I'll go with two. One I'll keep um, uh, with the American Civil War theme here. I've somehow hit on today. But uh, so I loved uh, Gordon Ray, is the author R H E A. Um, you may know him, uh, given your interest. But he's he, so far it's a four volume series of the Overland Campaign. It's uh, not. It isn't. He isn't one I'm familiar with actually, Tom. And I consider myself fairly well read. So this this is really interesting to me. Yeah, check him out. He's he, there's a couple of interviews on him uh, on YouTube. People do, uh, you know. Uh, but he's a he was a lawyer at Louisiana. Popped up about 20 years ago, and everybody's like, I mean, this guy just does solid research. And so I love the Overland Camp. I mean, you know, it's a very fascinating period. So he starts with the wilderness. And then his last one is uh, on to Petersburg. Uh, but each one, there's four books. He does a great one of his 
is uh, I think it's the second one, the uh, Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, which is a great, interesting battle. But in there, there's a section, Death of a Cavalryman, and it's uh, it's the final week of Jeb Stewart as when Sheridan makes his beeline for Richmond and Stewart has to follow him yeah. and eventually follows him to his death at Yellow Tavern. But yeah, very okay. poignant there. So any of those, you, the whole series, the Gordon Ray um Overland campaign is well worth it. And then a longtime favorite of mine, just I found years ago, uh, I think his name is Tony Letizia. Uh, he's, I think he's British historian. I'm pretty certain he is. Uh, he was attached to the British Army in, I think, Berlin at some point. A uh, book I got years ago, it's uh, Zukov on the Odor. Okay. And um, it's a it's just a jam-packed uh, final Berlin campaign. And it's one of these books. I'm, I'm a big fan of when you open a book and you go through the table of contents, just like what's it tell you? If that's all you had from the book, what do you get? Yeah. And this book just is – it just doesn't. I mean it's – Ticks all the boxes. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's excellent. So um, that's one that I always recommend. And if anybody's interested in that error – uh, it's a good one. I think Letizia did a Stalingrad one as well. But. Well, neither of those authors have uh, appeared on the God's Own Scale virtual library shelves before, Tom. So thanks for the, uh, those unique uh, choices. And I sh- as soon as we finish this conversation, I'm onto Amazon for the uh, <laughs> for the Overland campaign book because uh, I'm good, always good. looking for a new read. Uh, on the American Civil War. It's not one I've been familiar with. Uh, Tom, absolutely, it's been a real pleasure to chat to you. I've kept you for about an hour and a half, so a little bit longer than I said I would. Um, But um, I really appreciate you giving up your time. Uh, Continue your good work, and I look forward to what you come up with next uh, on on the channel. All right. Well, Sean, thank you again. It was was a lot of fun. I'd I'd love to chat again and stay in touch, and uh, hopefully we can... uh, Roll some dice sometime. Brother Bertie went away To do his bit the other day With a smile on his lips and his left hand And fixed upon his shoulder right and gay As the train moved out he said Remember me to all the birds Then he wagged his paw and went away to all Shouting out these pathetic words Oh, sing, cheerio, chin, chin, na, boo, doo, doo, 
bright, big, and big sword. He was the president of war. Till the hun with the gun called it Pete Dog for fun and fancy punched him on the door. Right across the barbed wire fence, the German dropped in a dear, oh dear. All the wire gave away a tiny yell, hooray, as he ran for the Dutch frontier. Goodbye, goodbye, a wife and dear baby and dear from your eyes. Though it's hard to pass, I know, I know, I'll be England is the go, don't cry, don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky, on powerful things, serious, in tea.